0: today with mark hirschberg hi mark how are you
1: doing great thank you for having me today
0: you're very welcome you're very welcome and you want to talk about what we can learn from mit the uh, famous university in boston where you work what we can learn from from you and that organization about leadership development do you want to just quickly introduce yourself and tell us why uh, what you do at mit
1: sure about 20 years ago i had been working doing tech startups in boston and hiring a bunch of people and i noticed a problem when i would ask them a technical question they would give me a technical answer okay great that's what i was looking for but then i would ask questions like what makes someone a good leader how do you recognize who would be an effective teammate what are some of the communication challenges you might face and i would get blank stares and i realized it's because We've never taught these questions and these skills to our students. If you look at a standard academic program, this doesn't come up. The only reason I happen to know the answers is because I was reading a lot and thinking about these questions, but it wasn't common. So I began to look for materials that could help train up my staff and didn't really find much. At the same time, MIT had just gotten a grant from Desh gave us a wonderful $5 million donation to start a program that was pretty broad in its goals. And being an MIT alum, I happened to get connected with the person in charge of this. And I said, listen, I had just faced this challenge. It sounds similar to some of the things that you're looking to do with your program. Why don't we talk? And so we had this discussion. He said, listen, can you take your experience in the field and help us think through this program? So from the very beginning, we worked on what some of the modules were. And at that point, said, you know, we've got professors teaching it because we're MIT, but I think we'd really benefit if we got people like yourself, practitioners who have been out in the field who can go for more than just theory and give us actual practical advice and examples as we teach the students. So I and a whole bunch of other people like me began to teach in this program. And in fact, now the emphasis is, I think, significantly on people like myself. Uh, we've used various terms for them over the years, but uh, mentor instructors, I think, is the is a concept because we're teaching them, but it's it's not in so much of a pure lecture base, but a mentoring base. And so I've been doing that for the past 20 years. I've also taken a lot of the lessons from that program and put them into my book, The Career Toolkit essential skills for success that no one taught you.
0: Well, that that book, I'm going to put a link to that in the show notes so people can be able to see that, the Career Toolkit book. And it, it's interesting what you were saying about MIT. I know when I did my degree, and in, and in fact, when I did my master's, they were very reluctant to touch anything that, that kind of reeked of practical or non-academic, despite the fact that some of the issues we're talking about were, in a sense, quite practical that subjects. Why is that? Why are universities kind of slightly wary about getting out of academia and actually teaching what you might call these kind of
1: behavioral skills? There are multiple answers to that question. It's a, it's a really good question. Some of it comes from universities like MIT tend to be more research, research oriented. MIT will tell you the purpose of many of their undergraduate programs is to get you into a PhD program because it really is a research university. But the skills that we look at in this program, the way we came up with them, it was influenced a lot by what corporate America is coming to us saying they're missing. They're saying, look, we want students who are better at leadership. We want students who understand negotiations, who have a diverse network, and we're not seeing it. And this feedback, this is not unique to MIT or unique to technology and STEM students. We've seen similar research from other universities and just across the spectrum, we're getting requests from corporate America for these skills. Part of the reason generally we don't see it comes from the history of universities and what they were there for. And this goes back to universities beginning around the 12th, 13th, 13th centuries where it was focused on concentrated learning in a particular area. In fact, if you think about education in general, We go from broad education, learning literally your ABCs, how to read and write, doing basic math, to as you get to high school, you might get a little more focused. You're going to take an econ class or a class on world history. As you get into college, you might have a few general requirements, maybe one science, one literature class, but you're gonna focus a lot within your major. And then of course, as you get to a PhD, you get totally focused in your major the nature of our education is very much concentrating skill sets in a more and more narrow range and a lot of that comes from how education's evolved not just in the beginning but even over the 20th century where education has been in response to corporate needs of we need factory workers who have basic literacy skills we need now workers who understand basic skills in accounting or marketing to come in staff or corporate offices. But we have generally had people who have had narrow skills. If you think about the jobs of the 1950s, people were focused in a very narrow area and only needed that narrow skill set. It was senior management who had to make the big decisions. And we've had a change in the last, depending on how you look at, whether it's 20 years, 40 years, where all of a sudden our jobs have become more dynamic. And now we have to think outside whatever our prescribed discipline is. And that's where we need to start having a broader range of skills because we're interacting with a broader range of people. Yeah, it's what, you're up yet.
0: it's what you're saying about technical skills, isn't it? It's that focus just on the technical skill, whatever that might be, accountancy, law, whatever, medicine, whatever. But a lot of how we succeed in the corporate world is actually much more around those kind of more what people call soft skills. I don't particularly like that phrase, but those kind of behavioral skills like communication, et cetera, that's a lot more about how we succeed or fail. But there is still that. that. Yeah. But universities, as you say, they're, they're a million miles behind the curve on this one. A lot of them, I'm, I'm not saying this of a huge amount of experience. I don't work in the university world, uh, much as I would love the job that you described. That sounds absolutely perfect to me. But when you see kind of TV shows and you see things like, you know, Grey's Anatomy, where you've got these extremely highly skilled surgeons and they treat the people around them appallingly you know is, is that really what corporate america is like is it a bunch of highly trained uh, surgeons you know treating the help like that with it such disdain is that is that normal or is that just fiction
1: i think a little more fiction uh, let me just oh that's uh, a good side news <laughs> track. Let me sidetrack you mentioned uh soft skills i don't like that term either some of us at mit one of our former directors like the term firm skills so they're not hard skills but they're not totally soft and they are learnable skills. So they're firm skills, which obviously has a, a second implication of four firms. Uh, and I happen to like that term because these are learnable skills. This isn't, oh, some people are naturally good or bad. You can learn all of these skills, just like you can learn STEM skills and other hard skills. But to your question of corporate America, well, certainly there is uh, no shortage of, of jerks. And we've even seen, I think, especially in Silicon Valley, uh, unfortunately, we get these very talented technical people who know that they're in demand, who have companies chasing them. And we get cases uh, such as the sexism at Uber where they protected certain people because they were so technically strong. We do sadly have cases like that, but I think those are the exceptions, Uh, not, not rare enough as we'd like. But still, a lot of people in corporate America understand that now we have cross-functional teams, that now you have to combine your product strategy with your social media strategy, with your engineering, with your financial goals. And so it involves working with people in all these different groups and ideally even having some exposure or understanding outside of your own discipline and having these other perspectives.
0: Yeah, I think that's an important point to make, actually, because I think fiction almost kind of suggests that the, the more technically brilliant you are, the more the more of a genius you are, then there's kind of this inverse relationship with your social skills. And then for those soft skills or firm skills or behavioral skills, whatever we're going to call them, almost diminish as you acquire technical skills, or at least the need for them diminishes. And I think that is really dangerous. In the vast majority of what most of us do in our organizations, those firm skills those interpersonal skills are the kind of most important ones that we learn. So I think it is worth dwelling on that point for a minute.
1: I would attribute that to almost lazy writing. And I I use that term, I've got it from some other authors I know. When you think about what makes good drama, you need that hero, right? We need the action hero in the movies, the James Bond who single-handedly saves the world. What's the STEM equivalent? okay, it's a genius, right? It's not someone who's swilling martinis and chewing the bad guy. It's the scientific genius. But of course, everyone needs a weakness, right? You can't have that perfect hero. Everyone needs their kryptonite. Well, what is the most obvious kryptonite for that, that nerdy genius? We know it's bad social skills, right? That's the easiest one to pick up. You don't see a lot of TV characters who are, these geniuses, but also, say, have a drinking problem. They could write that, but it's just so easy to go into that trope of very technically competent, but socially very awkward.
0: Yeah, the drinking problem tends to go detectives, doesn't it? That's the trope,
1: the the (laughs) lazy
0: writing trope.
1: Exactly. And, And so we perpetuate that stereotype. Certainly, now I can say growing up as a 1980s nerd who didn't have great social skills, there there's some truth in where this trope came from but more and more as we look at what children today are growing up with the heroes are steve jobs and bill gates and all these great tech leaders who now are a little more social and a little more engaging and so i think we're going to modify that over time but it will it will take a generational shift for us to to have students and kids come up and say No, the two aren't part and parcel. You can have great technical skills or great kind of discipline uh, domain skills, but without the social inabilities.
0: So we've got this kind of we've got fiction pushing us one way with these kind of lazy tropes we've mentioned. We've got the sort of academia universities focusing very much on the technical skill and not really going into this area. So you how do you when you're sort of talking to students there in MIT how do they react to your classes do they do they regard them as as really absolutely vital and you know real keys to success in the future or are they kind of looking down their noses a little bit because it's it's not proper academia
1: we have traditionally had just under 50% of the students of the undergrads take our class so it's generally well received there's, of course, a, a spectrum. I see some students who come in who, frankly, they would be fine, even if they never took our class.
0: Oh, I hate people like that.
1: And and there are there are bulk. They're the hey, you know, I, I hear this is important. Not really sure what this is, but my friend said it's useful. So I thought I'd come and do it. And then there are the ones who have the too cool for school attitude and they go through it because their friend talked them into it, or they heard we give free lunch. So lunch is a good way to attract students in university, of course. And so they'll show up and go through it, but they're not they're not totally engaged. But I would say the bulk of the students, they don't necessarily understand why when they first show up, but they've heard such good things from alumni of this class that they they want to come and take it.
0: When we first talked about this, you were telling me about how you take a different approach to leadership development and the other firm skills stuff that you talk about. It's not the traditional university approach. Do you want to just talk us through how that works and why you take a different approach to, to leadership development?
1: The way this program is structured, it's a year-long class. And the program, by the way, it's called MIT's Undergraduate Practice Opportunities Program. The name was chosen because it resonates with other historical names at MIT Doesn't mean much outside the university. It's just called UPOP, U P O P. Colloquially, it's referred to as MIT's Career Success Accelerator. The class is a year long program for MIT sophomores. In the fall, we do some basic resume and job workshops. In the spring, it's a lot of helping them find an internship, but also doing small workshops that might be about a particular industry or speaking with someone in a field just to learn more about their career path and what they've done. The bulk of it, the real heart of the program is a boot camp that we do typically in January or February with the students. This is a nine to five class, which already is unusual for university because students are used to Monday, Wednesday, Friday, you know, two to 3 p.m. But we're, we're treating this like a corporate training program. In fact, one of the original developers of the class came out of, I believe, Cap Gemini. It was one of the back then big eight consulting firms and had done their uh, new hire corporate training and development. So he, he brought that practice with him. But here we're treating it like this is corporate America. This is, we're going to step you out of the university and we're going to put you in what a job feels like. So you're showing up 9 a.m. This isn't, you stroll in five minutes after class, just like you do with your lectures. Treat this like a job. And then the class itself, it's not purely lecture based because you can't teach these skills. You can't teach leadership by lecturing at someone. All of these skills, including lecturing, or excuse me, including leadership, negotiations, teamwork, understanding how to trade off uh, as you're working on a project and balancing time constraints and financial constraints and other unknowns how to think through ethical issues. Many of these skills you learn by doing. And so we'll put them into these exercises. Many of them are either team-based, where you're competing against other teams, or role-playing exercises, where you take on a particular set of knowledge, identity, and then engage with other students. And it's by this engagement that they start to learn. So a typical module begins with a little bit of setup. We'll have a professor or someone like myself will give maybe a 20 minute introduction as to what we're gonna be doing and why we'd say this is important. The students engage in the activity. Often they fail, which is many times what we want because it's in that moment of failure that they get the aha moment. And then afterwards we debrief with the students. We have the students discuss with each other what they learned, what worked, what didn't work. And then we bring in effectively war stories we bring in you know well this is what i did in the real world either to help illustrate or sometimes a student says i don't get it why does this matter and we can give these examples that help connect it to reality and then we might do a final little wrap up by some lecture again another 15 minutes of bringing it all together and it's it's in that moment towards the end where they do the debrief either with their small team or the large team that it starts to click I think the the key message from this program, when you think about leadership, we know there are PhD programs on it. So how much can you do in a week or in a year-long program where you're just engaging with them once in a while? It's not that we're teaching them the be-all-end-all of leadership. It's getting a slight mental shift. So leadership, the most obvious case, most students and even many employees I meet in their 20s, they think of leadership as Well, when I become a director or a manager, that's when I'll lead. That's when I have people under me. And of course, as we know, leadership is not positional. Leadership is influential. And when you get that aha moment with the students where you say, it's not about having that title. It's about putting forth an idea and influencing others to follow. That is leadership. They say, oh, okay, I don't have to wait till I'm 30 and get this promotion. I can start leading today. And they'll start to not only find opportunities for themselves to lead, but they'll identify what true leadership is from other people around them. And they begin to absorb and grow faster on their own. So the key messaging of this program is that we get this slight mental shift. I think of it as we just open the door for them. And then at that point, how far they go through it, that's up to them.
0: I think that's such a key point about leadership, that it's leadership is really the is influence that's very much what it is. I talk about it being influence influencing people and inspiring people to do something and as you say, it's got nothing to do with position so I think if the the more you can kind of get that point across the better you said quite a lot of things there and and you said about the way that you structure this is quite different from the the start and end times to the fact that it's a full day, which as you say is very unusual for university and the other point is why you kind of backed away from the sort of lecture approach where it, was, it would be heavily theory-based, at least during the lecture, and you've moved into a, into a very different space, and you said that the only way these things can be learnt is through doing. Do you want to just talk a little bit more about that, about what made you make that decision?
1: When we think about teaching people, I really see two different areas of, of learning. And so one is acquiring knowledge. When I think back to my physics classes, We'd show up in class and a professor would say, well, we left off here and put an equation on the board and then just start deriving, deriving, deriving. And I literally had classes where the professor just would go from one blackboard to the next to the next. And over the course of an hour, filled up nine blackboards with equations and we would sit there scribbling them down. And supposedly at some point in all this scribbling, we would somehow understand what was going on and acquire the knowledge and now have some new formula. And I think this works more or less uh, for physics or for accounting or for many classes where it's just taking knowledge. And even when we think about our corporate development, if you're running a class on how to do macros in Excel, okay, how does that work? Well, the students show up and you say, here we go, here's how to do macros, here's the formulas, here's the keystrokes, here are a few examples. Everyone walks out and says, great, that was helpful. They go back to their class, to their job and they start using macros because most people don't take an Excel macros class for fun. They took it because they have a need, they learn about it in a just-in-time learning type of way, and then they start applying it. And the way everyone in the world uses macros is basically the same. So you can teach them all the same way, say, here it is, remember, apply. This is different than these firm skills. And it's different in two ways. First, you don't say, here's how to be a leader. Okay, starting tomorrow, you're a leader. Because when I go back to my office, I might not instantly have a leadership opportunity. So I can't do a simple, just in time, learn this, and now apply it the next day. So I need to do something that's going to sit deeper than just, you took a whole bunch of notes as someone wrote on nine different blackboards. Second Whereas Excel macros work the same for everyone, leadership does not. I'm sure many of the people in the audience have read leadership books, and you have different theories of leaderships and different approaches. And this is the essence of these skills. When you look at leadership or communications or teamwork, there are different perspectives and approaches, and you become more effective by having that diversity of knowledge, of not just, here's the three steps to being a leader, write this down, go do it. And so it's important that students not only get that experience of, of physically doing and gaining the muscle memory, so it, it will be remembered if it's not immediately applied tomorrow, but also in that debrief afterwards, the students can say, well, you know, I said we should have done it this way because this is what I was thinking. And someone else says, well, oh, I thought of it this other way. And they're both valid in their perspective. And it's gaining that discussion and that diversity that you help to formulate a much broader and richer understanding of that particular firm skill. I think this is critically important to these types of skills, as opposed to simply knowledge that you can put in, such as what are the updated accounting regulations you now have to apply as you do the books each month in 2021.
0: Yeah, I think that the point there about discussion is absolutely vital. I think not only do you hear those other perspectives, and as you say, sometimes they're all right answers. It's not a simple right or wrong like an Excel macro. But also, I think the art, the act of actually forcing yourself to articulate your point of view really helps you understand what it is your your point of view is. I kind of go back to your physics thing. I always think of this a bit like Schrodinger's cat, where you kind of don't know what your opinion is. The box is closed until you're forced to tell somebody. And then it's, it's kind of like opening the box and finding out what you actually think about something. So I I think that just the act of discussion, the act of having to to articulate yourself is in itself such a useful learning tool.
1: I love that analogy. I might have to borrow that in the future.
0: You're very welcome to. Yeah, I, I call it Schrodinger's opinion. <laughs> Um, And how do students react to that kind of approach rather than the typical lecture, just tell me, which they make sort of quite passive role that they normally play?
1: They really like it. I think for two reasons. First, if you're asking students to spend eight hours sitting in a room, and this is not a standard lecture hall, we have them grouped into small tables for for team-based learning. But when you're asking students who are used to doing an hour-long session, maybe two-hour sessions throughout the day, sitting there for eight hours, they're not going to handle eight hours of lecture. I couldn't handle eight no, hours of
0: lecture. No, it would drive them mad, yeah.
1: So I, I think that it is something different, and it's it's very physical. And some of the exercises are literally physical, where they're trying to construct something and design competition. But even the ones where it's nothing more than a discussion, as we put them through, say, negotiation exercises, it's physical in that they're looking at each other and talking and not just sitting there passively listening to someone else speak for an hour. And so that physical engagement both makes it a little more energetic and active. But I think it does help with the learning. And I will say with this type of learning, I've, I've done lecture based teaching as well in, in other disciplines. When I give a class a lecture, at the end of the lecture, you say, well, I hope they got it. in a room of 200 people, maybe a few ask questions, and you're like, okay, I think I, I hope that student learn, but you have no idea. Here, you can figuratively see the light bulb go on in people's heads. You can see that moment where they're having a discussion with someone, and then all of a sudden, they get that little aha look on their face. And certainly as a teacher, this is one of the greatest moments for me where I say, wow, great, that student just learned. And so I'm, I'm sure students do learn through lectures, but here I can I can see them do it. And that's a really fun experience that gives me feedback on how well the class is going.
0: Yeah, I think it's kind of moving away from the fact that my job is to deliver a lecture to my job is to make light bulbs go on is kind of the, the shift of thinking. But Uh, You were talking about how, what we can transfer from this thinking at MIT into the corporate environment. So do you want to just tell us a little bit about that? What do you think we can take from this into our corporate learning if we're doing leadership development in, in the organization?
1: You should be able to replicate these ideas. Now, some of the content that we use at MIT, it's proprietary in the sense that some professor or some group has a copyright uh, and you're you're welcome to reach out to them and ask if you can you can license it but the general concept is one you can take and you don't have to necessarily use the tools the specific content that we use so on my website of my book so on uh, the careertoolkitbook.com on the resources page I have a guide that helps explain how to do this and what you can do I'm going to walk you through it right now this type of learning is, as we said, it should be more experiential. It's not lecture. You don't say, if you wanna be a leader, come to this class, take some notes, three hours later, you're a leader. To teach this within our organizations, I think there's two key approaches. First, it needs to be spread out over time. It's not a concentrated come once or come for a few days and you're done. Second, it needs to have that diverse set of perspectives. Because one person lecturing how to be a leader is not going to give them that rich set of experiences that a leader needs to understand to be effective in more than one scenario. So within your organization, create small groups. I would recommend groups around six to eight people. I give examples of how, if that's not efficient for you, you can do versions of this with groups of 20 to 40 people or even groups of 100 plus You have to structure it slightly differently in each of these cases. But as you have these groups, you can take content and the content, uh, again, on my website you have uh, in the download, there's a way you can actually just take the book's content and apply it. But you don't have to use the book. You can take your own content and you bring it into these groups and you say, here are the different topics over the next six cycles, 12 cycles, three cycles, however long you want here are the topics we're going to engage in. And you can have them all read the same content ahead of time. You can have them read different content, but on the same topic. You can bring in someone, potentially from your local university, to run some type of module. But the key is that you engage them with some type of thinking, and then you have them debrief as a group. And in doing so, that's where you get the learning we talked about earlier, where you get that discussion, you get the different perspectives, you get the light bulb starting to go on. And over the course of doing this, you're going to gain a lot of different perspectives and just a lot of different tools for when you face a leadership challenge in the future.
0: And can you give us an example of how a, uh, any particular session might work?
1: So a little more concretely, if you use the content from the book, I've broken it down into, here are the different topics, And here are the different sections that correspond to these topics. In this case, you just have folks do a little bit of reading. It's typically around 20 or 30 minutes of reading and then come together as a group. And there are some starting discussion questions that they can have. Optionally, you can facilitate these groups and come up with additional questions and talk about. And sometimes there are exercises for them to bring to the group. But it's having everyone sit around and talk about how did they see this challenge or what's their perspective on this and most importantly you want people to bring in their experiences and say well you know at my last company I had this situation and here's how we dealt with it or here's how someone else I knew at this company dealt with it and why I think that was good or bad or what we can learn from it and just having everyone bring that diversity of experiences their own or others helps them learn the the other way we bring in different content you could say the topic might be leading during transformation and you ask everyone go find an article or find two articles and read about transformation it's almost like the book reports that we did back in uh middle school come back and tell the group what did you read why what did you learn from this what can we as a group dissect and take away from it the other way if you want more experiential is you can actually go to I suggested universities. Uh, there are other sources as well. You could get some type of uh, case study, for example. Business schools, of course, write these by the by the hundreds each year. And so you can license a case study and say, well, this week what we're going to do is everyone shows up, and we're going to actually do this case study. So everyone read it ahead of time, and then we're going to have the discussion. And in fact, if you if you're familiar with business school learning. This is how most business schools teach. Maybe accounting is taught through traditional lecture methods, but when they do strategy and leadership negotiations, they're often taught through the case method. And business schools, of course, are famous for getting a diverse set of people. It's not just a whole bunch of people who are business undergrads. They'll get a former teacher, former military, former programmer, former consultant to come in. And then they have these discussions. So they get that diversity of opinion. What you're basically doing is replicating what business schools do within your organization for obviously a significantly lower cost.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the idea of case studies and simulations is really, really important. And your, your idea about going away and researching the articles as well. I think I've, d- I've done something similar on on some of the programs that I've run. The one thing that, is certainly new to me is the idea of asking people to read something for half an hour and then go through some structured questions and discussions obviously as a methodology it doesn't it, it it's a familiar concept but it, within this context of leadership development in an organization that sounds unusual what kind of thing might they be reading about and how the hell do you get them to sit still that long
1: well you would Ideally, ask them to do this on their own time a few days ahead of time instead of everyone sit here for half an hour quietly. And this is where you can put in whatever content you want. If we think about it in reverse from the order I described this, so case studies, we explain this is what business schools do. If you do the diverse set of articles, this is almost a early version of case studies. Because if you look at most case studies, the professor actually says, here's a situation I'm going to go out, I'm going to go talk to the people in this organization. I'll change the names, and then I'll turn it into a case study. So the articles is almost the first version, the prototype version of that, where, well, it's not a full case study, but I read this article about this situation, and here's my fresh take on it. What's yours? If you have a uh, a preset, we're all going to read the same thing. And it could be an article, or it could be a book. And of course, you can use my book, or you can use any number of great books on leadership or any of these other topics. One of the advantages to to doing the book is when you say everyone read pages 62 to 75, now you have a common language. I think that's one of the advantages of this method is everyone has a common framework. So when they face a challenge later on, they can say, oh, well, this is just like, say the hedgehog analogy if you've read good to great. Oh, right. Hedgehog. Yeah, I get it. Whereas people who have come from different backgrounds might not instantly know what that means.
0: Right. Yeah. I have read that book, but I have no idea what you're talking about. It's quite a while since I read the book.
1: Well, that's that brings up another interesting challenge. <laughs> I my my memory. Don't remember, I don't remember what the hedgehog challenge is. I just remember they have three circles and a hedgehog. And this is a problem we face with a lot of books is three weeks later, let alone the many years since I've read that one, three weeks later, we forget half the material. So one thing I've done for my book is I've created a special type of app that I've patented, which replicates the content in the book and provides a passive reminder. So it uses spaced repetition, but of course, no one wants to sit there and open up an app and say, oh, now I have to do flashcards. So this will pop up every day, one of the tips or a good quote or a key piece of information from the book. So after you've read the book, you can be reminded each day, takes you literally three seconds. You look at the pop-up, say, thanks and swipe it away. And it helps to reinforce that using the proven method of spaced repetition. It can even be set to, if you just want chapter two or just chapter seven, so you can concentrate on a particular area, or of course they can open the app and from there just, swipe through and look at, oh, I got a concentrate, I have a networking event, let me brush up on my networking. But I think this is an important step in books, that books to be effective need to go from simply it's a linear experience of reading words on a page to it is delivery of content which has to go beyond the pages to make it more effective.
0: What a great idea and what a really important point as well, yeah, because book, a book in that sense is quite an old-fashioned way of getting that knowledge across but in a sense that's not why it exists it's a little bit like you were saying universities exist more as research organizations and teaching organizations Uh, it's a little bit like that a book is kind of exists in a lot of cases to establish the credibility of the author rather than necessarily upskill the reader but I think that innovation you've just described as an app like that just seems to be such a great idea such a great add-on to a book I love it.
1: This applies to our learning as well. If if you've got yeah. just a bunch of lectures in your organization, to your point, it's, it's not about, oh, look, we have 17 different lectures that we can offer to our employees. It's about helping them learn and making that more than just a one-off experience will help to deepen the learning.
0: Yeah, I think that's a brilliant idea, it's an app. Uh, of that kind of nature that's that's really good i was just thinking about that now my daughter's studying her a-levels which is the kind of uk version of the exams you do before going into university and i'm sure she spends probably somewhere in the region of 26 hours a day staring at her phone so i'm sure if there's an app popping up with some of her a-level maths equations that would be a good thing that's a great idea and i think
1: the key there's plenty of flashcard apps out there there's no shortage of Pre-existing ones, or ones where you can create your own flashcards. The problem with those is that you have to actively engage with it. You have to say, "Oh, right, uh, let me open that flashcard app. Let me actively look." Right. And so, by having this this push, this passive learning, as for busy professionals, I think that's going to be the the key differentiator. I was actually very surprised that this didn't exist. I didn't set out to build it. I looked for it, and when I discovered it didn't exist. I built it, patented it, and created a white-label version of it. So hopefully other books and training can use this in the future.
0: Well, listen, Mark, thanks very much for that. It's really interesting to hear how these things work within these top business schools, top universities, and and I think some really interesting ideas there, some useful stuff. If people want to know more about what you were saying about the website, the book, et cetera, where would they go to get more information?
1: If you go to the website, thecareertoolkitbook.com, you can learn more about the book as well as where to buy it. You can download any of the free resources, including how to set up these programs I described within your organization. And you can also find where to download the free app, which is available for both iPhones and Androids. And you can, of course, contact me through the website.
0: Well, thank you very much, Mark. That sounds really interesting. And I will put links to that in the show notes and stuff for this as well. So please do. It's all, A lot of that is free as well. So that's that's extremely good value. That's... So thank you very much, Mark. Thanks for your time and thanks for your thoughts on this.
1: Thank you very much for having me on the show.